Well, good morning. My name is Tommy Clayton. I'm one of the pastors here. And on behalf of our church, welcome to Grace Life. I'm thankful of all the places you could have came to worship. You chose here to be with us this morning. And we are at the last installment of a four-week series that we've conducted in Mark's Gospel. We're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 7. And this is sermon 4 of this series called The Ruler Who Serves. Now, in and of itself, that's, that just sounds contradictory, because what ruler have you ever met who serves? Some pretend to serve, some want you to think that they serve and that they accommodate you, but Jesus truly came and was a servant. He laid down his life um, for the sheep that he came to die for and, and to love and to reconcile to his Father. And that's what this series has been about. And today, we come to the section um, that's 23 verses. This is a really long section, and, I, and I've probably done something foolish by trying to bite off all of this and, and give it in one message. Most of the people that I've read or listened to put this in at least two sermons, sometimes three, sometimes four. But I want to honor the way Mark's gospel was written. This was a gospel that's the, the go gospel. It's filled with action. Mark uses the word immediately, I think 50-something odd times. So I think the Lord would have us move through this quick and not, and not prolong this. And so I want to deal with this in one message, and I pray that... Uh, we're all gripped by it. Amen? We have uh, some cards that are on the back on our donation and tithe box. When you leave here today, I would love to hear from you, especially if you're a first-time guest and especially if I haven't met you yet. Um, we're not going to harass you. You can just put your name on that. And if you have a question, you need prayer, you need counseling, we have Beholding and Becoming Counseling Ministry here. There's a cart when you leave. If you want to get plugged into a home group that meets in this area, there's a home group card in the back. Um, or if you just want updates and information, you can sign up for our newsletter. You can talk to Melissa Affalter about that on your way out. But we would just love to hear from you. We want to serve you. We want to serve our city. Uh, we want to share the love of Christ with you and, and help you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so please don't leave if you need help without getting some help. And we'll have a time for our prayer team to meet with you at the end of the service today too. So we are in Mark's Gospel. The verses that were read, verses 1 through 23, I'll be referring to those periodically. But I've told you before that Mark's gospel is an action gospel. It's packed full of action. It's the shortest gospel, and I've referred to it as the comic book version of the gospel, um, because it's, it's like there's a lot of pictures, there's a lot of action, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of adventure, and there's very small amount of teaching. You know, Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel has long sections of teaching, red letter, Jesus is saying all these things, all these parables, Sermon on the Mount. Mark doesn't have hardly any of that except for this section here. And so most people are reading along in Mark. You're getting this comic epic action. Jesus is casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. Um, he's stilling the storms and silencing the waves and the wind. And then all of a sudden, brrr, it really seems to slow down. But I don't want you to think of this in that way at all because this is an epic showdown is what this is. In fact, I would have liked to have been there and watched the faces of the Pharisees when they were confronted by Jesus. This is an epic showdown, and this has been a long time coming. And, you know, this series has been Jesus, the ruler who serves. He, he, he's uh, the ruler who meets your needs. He's the ruler who, who cares for you and serves you. And, and this week, it's Jesus and your religion. Jesus and your religion. What is going on here? Jesus is protecting the people that he loves so much from the false religion of the day. This is an epic showdown. Listen, Jesus didn't go out trying to pick this fight. This fight came to him. This fight came to him. Um, so this is a really important section. What Jesus says here is profound. It's important because it sheds light on an issue that affects all of us. 
And that is the dangers of religion. And look, I know that the word religion is in the Bible. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, Pure and undefiled religion before the Father is this, visiting the orphans and the widows in their time of affliction and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. So the way James uses religion is, what kind of religion do we have? Do we, do we have the kind of religion that leads to acts of love, service, kindness, grace, etc.? But the way I'm using the word religion today, I'm not meaning it in the way James did, okay? I'm using it to say man-made religion. Our way, our attempts, our meager attempts to uh, make our way up to God by establishing rules and traditions and adding things to Scripture. Um, that's the kind of religion I'm talking about. And it was running rampant when Jesus came to earth and when He turned 30 years old and began His public ministry, it all came to a head. And so Jesus here is confronting the false religious teachers of the day and He's helping them and He's helping us. So this is really, really important. The dangers of religion... The dangers of religion. What does man-made religion do? And look, there's other names that we could use. We could call it moralism. We could call it traditionalism. Some people call it legalism. And I know there's a lot of confusion about what those words mean. So I'm going to use religion, and I'm going to show you what I mean by it, okay? Religion is very dangerous, the kind that we see here. And it's dangerous uh, for five ways. There, there's five ways that I believe religion kills Christianity. Dead. And so here's our outline for today. If you, Oh, man, they're on the ball up there today. Um, five ways that religion kills Christianity, and we're going to see each of these in this text as we move along. And I'm, I'm warning you, okay? I'm taking the 5,000-foot view. That doesn't mean I'm going to dig in every single verse. There's 23. We'd be here until lunch, and you, you don't want that, and I don't want that, okay? So we're going to back up. I'm going to give you the generic impression of what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to teach us from this passage Five ways religion kills Christianity. One, it blinds you to the glory of Christ. Two, it buries the gospel under these hopeless layers of complexity. Three, it breeds contempt, both for other people who don't keep those rules and for the Scripture itself. Four, it binds your freedom. I know, I couldn't think of a clever B word, sorry. That was the only one. It, it, it binds your freedom. And five, it bypasses the real problem. That's what religion does, all those things. So let's look at the first one here. Religion blinds you to the glory of Jesus. Now this is pretty incredible, and it's easy to miss this. We are in Mark chapter 7. A lot has happened up to this point. Jesus has done some pretty amazing things that nobody has ever boasted to be able to do in the history of redemption. Moses couldn't do the things he did. Elisha, Elijah, none of the prophets John the Baptist didn't do any of those things. He didn't do any miracles. Jesus came along and he did some spectacular things, some raw displays of his power and his authority, claiming that he was, in fact, the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And the Pharisees were there to see those things. So check this out. They had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's easy to be numb and desensitized to that. Jesus raised people from the dead with a word. Young man, I say to you, arise. And bam, they woke up from the dead. I mean, he, he crashed funerals, <laughs> Jesus did. He cleansed lepers who were considered ceremonial, <clears throat> ritualistically unclean. You couldn't touch them, you couldn't be around them. Jesus walked up and touched them and they were cleansed instantly. Their hair grew back, their extremities that had fallen off regrew. It was amazing. He could create things that previously weren't there. He could silence the storms with a word, hush, be still. 
He cast out demons with authority. Nobody had ever done that before. In fact, up at this point, when these Pharisees come and confront him from Jerusalem, Jesus, just in Mark's gospel alone, had done 12 miracles. 12 miracles, okay? Now let me ask you a question. Had you been there and been a religious leader waiting on your Messiah, and you saw Jesus do all of these things, demonstrate his glory, prove that he is who he says he was, what would you be doing? <laughs> I mean, hopefully you'd fall on your face and say, command me, Lord, right? Not these guys. Look what they did. Check this out. Oh, I guess I better turn over to Mark's gospel here. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And so, uh, look down here in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Are you kidding me? I mean, you've got to be kidding me, guys. Twelve miracles. Raised people from the dead. Cleansed lepers. Cast out demons. Had authority over nature, over death, disease, disaster, demons. And his disciples eat with unwashed hands. Are you kidding me? What does religion do? It blinds you to the glory of Jesus Christ. You can't see his glory. You're, it, it's eclipsed. It's eclipsed by what? It's eclipsed by your tradition, by all these rules, all these layers of regulations and, and traditions that are extra biblical outside of the scripture. And you can't see through all that garbage. So all you can see is that, hey, look, this guy that claims to be the Messiah and did all these things, his followers aren't keeping the tradition of the elders. So what's up with that? I mean, these guys are the regulators. They come to regulate, right? Now, and I know, listen, I know how this goes. I do. I've read this before. It's in Matthew chapter 15 too. It's easy. It's really easy to read this and to laugh at the Pharisees and to throw rocks at them and to scoff at them and mock them and say, man, those guys, this is so crazy. I'm so thankful that we had the complete word of God and that we see we're nothing like them. But listen, I want to tell you something. That, that way of thinking is very much alive and well today. Even in churches. In fact, it thrives in churches. It doesn't take long for it to begin to infest itself. Like the bed bugs we talked about last week. You don't see it. All of a sudden you show up with all these bites and rashes on you and, and your house is infested with them, right? It's what legalism, man-made religion, and moralism and tradition can do. Something that starts out good, tradition, then traditions aren't all bad, right? We have a tradition of meeting here at 10 o'clock. That's a good thing, right? I mean, what would I say? Hey, we may meet here next week, we may not. Chaos ensues. Some traditions are good and helpful, but the, the Pharisees and the scribes had elevated. That's what happens. First, you introduce tradition. Then you elevate it to a place where it's equal with Scripture. Yeah, that's what happens next. No! You know what happens next, right? Then you elevate it above Scripture, and it's the ultimate authority. That's what always happens. And man, I lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? Yeah, I know how this goes. We look at the Pharisees and we say they're dumb, they're stupid, they're silly, and we throw rocks at them. Uh-uh, uh-uh. That's a terrible way to read your Bible. That's a terrible way to understand Scripture. No, this is alive and well today. And it may be alive and well in your own house. Let me help you understand. How does this work? You are so fixated on rules, regulations, traditions, things that are now not clearly commandments in the Bible. I'm talking about extra things that you can't see the glorious things that God is doing right in front of you. I've got five kids, and I pray desperately that all of them come to know the Lord and that they follow Jesus. And you know what? That doesn't happen overnight. I know justification is instantaneous. One minute we're not a Christian, 
We believe the gospel, the next minute we are. But seeing how that works out in their life, that's a process, isn't it? Where you see fruit where you didn't before. And sometimes I'm looking like, Lord, show me fruit. I want to see your glory. And God is showing me right in front of me. He's showing me they're getting more sensitive to sin. They're getting more aware of their own hard-heartedness in the rebellion. But I can't see it because I'm looking at they don't put the dang toilet lid down, right? Or they don't brush their teeth when I tell them to. Or they don't say, yes, sir, no, sir. I'm blinded to the glory of Christ because I'm so fixated on all these other things. Tradition, preference, whatever it is, they're good things, they're helpful things. They introduce structure and organization into your house at times, but other times they can blind you completely to the glory of Christ. It happens in marriages. I know it's going to get really quiet in here, but I want to be faithful to preach this text. It happens in marriages. You know, you just want your spouse to just be on time, okay? Will you just value the things that I value and you can't see the growth and the progress and the transformation that God is doing in their life? You're blinded to it. Why? Because there's just this one thing, you know. There's just one thing. His followers didn't wash their hands. There's just this one thing that blinds you and eclipses you to the majesty and the glory of Jesus. It almost makes the things he's doing in the life of those you care about and love imperceptible. We can't see it. I'm a biblical counselor. And if I'm not careful... Sometimes I'm blinded to the glory of Christ and the clients that I'm counseling. You know, I want to see them become a full-fledged, I want to see them confess Christ as Lord, be baptized publicly, be in the front row every Sunday, be on time, sign up to serve somewhere, and then be a church planner one day, right? And, and, and I want them to keep all these traditions and all these rules, and I can't see that God is already at work molding them, fashioning them, shaping them, conforming them into the image of His Son. I'm blinded to that. That's what religion can do if we're not careful. That's what it did then, and it still happens today. It blinds us. And when that blindness happens, it's very frightening because all your joy gets stolen away because you're so fixated and obsessed with those rules. Feeling gets taken away. Everything's gray. You're not experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised. And before you know it, you are what Larry Osborne called an accidental Pharisee. You're a regulator yourself, completely blinded to the glory of Jesus Christ. You look past the glory that's shining and you you only see this person or this church or this other Christian over here and they're not measuring up. They're defiled, they're unclean because they're not keeping your traditions. It happens all the time. All the time it does. And listen, this first point is key. This is the domino um, that causes the rest of these points to, to, to follow. Once you're blinded to the glory of Christ, all these other things start happening. Chaos ensues. And listen, Satan loves to do this. I mean, that's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 4 says that the God of this world loves to blind the minds of men and women, to the glory of Jesus Christ. He loves to do that, and one of the chief ways he does it is through religion. I mean, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy if you think about it. If you were the God of this world, how, how might you blind people's minds? Use the very thing they profess to love, the religion, right? You can put these blinders inside and just embed it inside the religion with traditions. It's pretty incredible. So how do you overcome being blinded? Well, one of the things is you spend time asking God to to take your blinders off, to show you the glory of Christ, following Jesus, watching what He did, watching how He interacted, exposing yourself to Scripture. It's funny, we had this outreach at our 
uh, and our home group into land. And we always collect a whole bunch of candy, and, and our home group's amazing. All the people, sacrificial, they spent probably hundreds of dollars on all this candy. And we just about gave all of it out uh, on October 31st in our driveway. We met a lot of people. I love it. It's one of my favorite times of the year. But here's the downside of that. See, I got a sweet tooth. I do. I have a weakness for chocolate. Uh, and all that candy, my kids are just like me. They have a weakness for sugar and chocolate. So here's what we did. We had a strategy. We would take all this Halloween candy, all this chocolate. Man, they make so many amazing kinds of candy with chocolate. I could talk all day about it. And we thought, you know what? We're going to hide it in my closet. So the kids, the kids won't know what's there, right? And so my wife's an amazing cook. She makes some of these three, four course meals. She's like MacGyver in the kitchen. You can give her some duct tape, a wing nut, and she'll throw a casserole together, you know? It's amazing. Uh, but I've noticed something. When I'm not eating all the stuff that she cooks, the glorious stuff, and I'll go into my closet, and there's that candy, you know? And I start stuffing myself with it, filling my face with the sugar, processed foods. It's disgusting, terrible for me. For my skin, it's horrible. Um, when I do that, I'm not so hungry for what she puts out, the glorious meal that she cooks. But if I'm patient and if I wait on my wife to cook our meal and I stuff myself on that, I go, I go in my closet and none of that stuff is, I mean, I'm kind of lying with the illustration. It still does. I still eat it. But you understand in principle, in, theoretically, uh, I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't be hungry. Anyway, okay, next point. It, it blinds us to the glory of Christ. Point number two, it buries the gospel under these layers of complexity. You guys are scared because you know there's five points uh, and I've only hit a couple verses and you're looking at your watch already. Don't worry, we're going to get out of here, okay? Look at this. Check this out. Chapter 7. I love this because this was written to Gentiles. Did you know that? Mark's gospel was written specifically for Gentiles who were probably Romans and they would not understand all these crazy Jewish customs. So Mark put this long parenthesis in this passage for the, for the Gentiles he was writing to, and it's helpful for us too. Check this out. Verse 3, and he's explaining why this was a big deal to the Pharisees. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, you see that little uh, point tucked away? As the leaders go, so go the people. If you're a religious leader and you introduce all these rules and regulations, guess what? It's going to trickle down and all the people are going to be affected by it. This is really sad. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And then this is the really sad part. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I hit the pause button there. What in the world is this all about? Let me tell you what this is about. God, in His infinite wisdom, embedded these visual aids in the Old Testament to help us know that when we are to approach God and worship in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, if you were a priest, a religious leader, you had to do this ritualistic ceremonial cleansing as a visual reminder that our hearts are unclean and they need to be cleansed. We're defiled and we need to be cleansed so that we can approach God. He's holy, we're unholy, we're unclean. And so listen, check this out, only the priest were to do that. And they were only supposed to do it if they had touched something that was defiling, like a dead body or somebody with leprosy or a bodily discharge. It was a pretty simple thing, right? But years went by, and the elders and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, all those people that were leaders, um, they said, you know what? This is a really important law. And if it's good for priests to wash their hands, 
it's probably good if everybody washes their hands, right? Isn't this, you see how this happens? And if it's good to do that before you enter the tabernacle, I mean, I don't know, it's probably good to do it before you eat. So layers and layers and layers of tradition and rules and regulations had just buried the truth about God's goodness. I mean, these hopeless layers of complexity. In fact, brief history lesson here. I hope this isn't boring to you like a lecture or something. By the time of Jesus, all the scribes and Pharisees had, had amassed and accumulated what they called um, the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah was a whole bunch of writings, commentaries, um, and supplementary materials from the Torah, from the Old Testament, to explain what it meant, how to live it out, how to practice it. Um, and they did what's called fencing the law. You familiar with this term? If the law is right here, and if you break that law, then you're in trouble, then it's probably good to put up a barrier so that you never even get close to it, right? Do you guys know about that? I grew up on a farm in Arkansas, and we had cattle, we had horses, we had all kinds of animals. And my dad, with the help of his two sons, we installed electrical fences all over those, I don't know how many acres, I had a lot of acreage. And there were electrical fences everywhere, and it only took the animals a few times before they knew, don't, don't, don't walk up to that fence and lean over it to eat the grass. Don't go anywhere near it, right? Well, they begin to fence the law, and then it's like, well, let's fence the fence. And then let's fence the fence of the fence of the fence. And before you know it, you're like hemmed in and restricted, and there's all these fences. Now, it started out good because the law is good. It's holy. It's wise. It's righteous, right? And so they, they, starting out, they did it to protect the law. But what happens is um, layers and layers, Layers and layers of complexity come in and smother the good news about Jesus. It happened in the Old Testament, it happened in the New Testament, it happens today. So that's what had happened here. So the Mishnah was all these rules and regulations, and they said, you know what? Uh, we probably need to explain the Mishnah. So then they had the uh, uh, Gemara. The Gemara was an explanation of the Mishnah. And then after the Gemara and the Mishnah, they said, we should probably combine those things in one volume, and they came up with... The Talmud. And then after the Talmud, they came up with something else. Um, I forgot the name of it, but you, you get the point. In fact, I read somewhere that in the Mishnah, there were, check this out, guys, just to help you put leather on this, there were 30 chapters devoted to just how you wash your hands before you ate. 30 chapters. Now, let me ask you something. Is that ridiculous? Do you think that that's ridiculous? That is ridiculous. Yeah. That's ridiculous. I mean, where's the good news in that? Where's the abundant life in that? You know what you would do? You would give up. It's like going to Lowe's and buying a cabinet if you know nothing about carpentry. And it looks simple. You, you need a screwdriver. Um, you need a wife. <laughs> yeah. uh, you need a, a little bit of glue. And you need about an hour to put this thing together. What if you pulled out the instruction manual and it was like the, the thickness of a Sears Roebuck catalog? What would you do? You'd, you'd laugh and you'd go get a refund and give up and not do it. That's what religion had become. That's what Christianity, Old Testament Judaism, had become by the time of Jesus. It was just hopelessly layered, hopelessly layered, buried. See, a lot of people read this and they don't understand. They think, well, the Pharisees were just uh, hypochondriacs. Look, they were germaphobic. No, they weren't. This has nothing to do with hygiene. Nothing at all. This has got nothing. They didn't even know about germs back then, okay? This is not that Jesus didn't practice personal hygiene. This was Jesus rejected. He rejected all the traditions of the elders and the scribes that had accumulated over the centuries. Jesus intentionally violated it. I mean, they're a little bit cowardice because they say you're followers. But if you read another version of this in Luke's gospel, 
Jesus went and sat down and ate dinner with a Pharisee, and it says that the Pharisee was astonished that Jesus himself didn't wash his hands. And Jesus knew his thoughts and read his mind, and he said, yeah, you Pharisees like to wash the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is dirty and defiled. I mean, Jesus didn't make any bones about it, did he? He attacked, he attacked uh, and revealed and exposed their hypocrisy. So that's what had happened uh, at this time. And, and here's a quote. This is what J.C. Rouse said. This is so good. He said, It's just as easy to destroy the authority of God's Word by addition as it is subtraction. See, we think that. Don't take away from the Word of God. Leave it all in there. Amen and amen. But listen, you can destroy and bury the gospel by addition just as easily as you can by subtraction. That is definitely what these people had done. And if you think this is ridiculous, I will just ask you, if you went to your Christian bookstore today and you were trying to find what's the, what's the main idea behind Christianity, can somebody just tell me I'm a sinner and I, and I need to be forgiven and I need to be cleansed? Can somebody tell me some good news? How can, how can that happen? Can I just tell you, um, if you believe in luck, good luck finding that in any kind of religious establishment. Try to find the good news aisle. Try, try to uh, dig your way out, out of all those layers of hopeless complexity. Here's how you pray. Here's how you study your Bible. Here's, and look, good things. Good things. That's how tradition starts out, right? But, I mean, it's like the kid I read about a long time ago. There was a big party to celebrate this little baby's birth. Um, and the baby was laid on the bed. And all the guests that came were putting their coats on top of the baby. And they didn't know it. And the child smothered and died. The whole thing was about the baby, but he got smothered, suffocated, and perished underneath all those coats. The gospel, the same thing happens to the gospel sometimes. It gets smothered, it gets buried under all these hopeless layers of complexity. The religious leaders had made it so hard to understand how is it that we can approach a holy God. It happened then, it happened now. God gave us the Bible, He gave us the gospel, He gave us simplicity, authority, clarity, and it's so easy for us sometimes to just confound that and confuse that. Behind ceremony, behind ritual. John MacArthur said this about the Pharisees. I love this. He said they were going to hell with, with clean hands. I hope our religion doesn't end up that way. We have clean hands and we got all these traditions and we're going straight to hell. Because we missed the gospel. It was buried. And nobody uncovered it for us. We didn't uncover it. It can happen. Religion makes following Jesus hopelessly complex. Regulators. And that's really, you know, last month, October 31st, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. There was a, a little monk named Martin Luther, and he was tired of the regulations and the traditions and the glory of Christ being eclipsed and the good news being buried. And he read Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and it says... Basically, it says uh, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, that the righteous shall live by faith. And he says the gates of paradise were opened up to him, and he went and nailed 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and the Reformation was sparked um, by the little flame that he lit and the help of many other men. Because the good, you couldn't find any good news anywhere back then. It was you have to buy an indulgence or you have to say this many prayers or you have to go join a monastery and wear a potato sack and shave the top of your head. There wasn't any good news and Martin Luther recovered the gospel. And praise God he did or we wouldn't be here today. God used him in a mighty way and John Knox and all the other men during that time. 
I don't know if I've told you about this book by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a storybook for children. It's called the Jesus Children's Storybook Bible, and we use it a lot at this church. I read it to my kids. I read it to myself. It's one of my favorite books. I even recommend it to new believers because it's so clear. There's no layers of confusion or complexity in it. She just shows you how all the Bible points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I read an article by her the other day, and she said this. She said, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, and there are certainly rules in there that tell you how life works best. But the Bible is much more than a book of rules. And she said, other people think that the Bible is just a book filled with heroes. And it is, but you'll soon notice when you read the Bible that they're flawed heroes. They're men and women with clay feet. And so it's more than a book of rules uh, for you to follow. And it's more than a lot of heroes whose example you're supposed to follow. Because you can't keep all the rules. And you certainly can't. And sometimes you shouldn't follow all the examples. She said, it is a story about God coming and rescuing something that was very precious to him that was lost. And then she said this, When I go to churches, I speak to children. I ask them two questions. First, how many people here sometimes think you have to be good for God to love you? Man, this is such a good question to ask your kids, guys. I'm telling you as a parent. How many people here sometimes think you have to be good for God to love you? They tentatively raise their hands. And I raise mine along with them. It makes me want to cry to read that. Because you realize that's got nothing to do with Christianity. That is not the heart of Christianity at all. If that's the heart of Christianity, why in the world did Jesus come and hang up on a wooden cross naked and take the wrath of his Father? <laughs> if we have to be good for God to love us. It's got nothing to do with the Gospel. And then she said this, How many people here sometimes think that if you aren't good, God will stop loving you? They look around and again raise their hands. And she says, these are children in Sunday schools who know the Bible stories. These are children who probably also know all the right answers. And yet they have somehow missed the most important thing of all. They have missed what the Bible is all about. And maybe, maybe we have too. Just like the Pharisees and the scribes did. They were the experts on the law. They could quote to you in Hebrew some of the prophecies and the stories from the Old Testament. And they had absolutely no clue what any of them pointed to. And I meet people all the time that are in the same shoes that they are. You ask them what Christianity... I talked to a guy in my front yard not too long ago. I was talking to this guy about Christianity. This guy talked about Loch Ness Monsters and Bigfoot and Alien and all these uh, crazy Hebrew stuff from Genesis chapter 6 about where the Nephilim came from and the giants and had uh, crazy stuff, had offspring with women. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. What's any of that got to do with anything, though? Seriously. What's that got to do with anything? I want to know I'm a sinner. God is holy. How in the world can I be made right with him? And it was like, it just went, he had no category for that. And I'm like, listen, man, Jesus came to earth. He could have answered and unraveled all those mysteries. Are there really mermaids? Jesus could have answered all of that. Is Is a Sasquatch real? Come on now. Is there extraterrestrial life on other planets? He didn't mess with any of that. Why? Because listen, in the long run, none of that matters. We'll find out about Bigfoot in heaven. I mean, I'm a little curious. I'm from Arkansas. I've seen him. <laughs> no, you know what Jesus came to talk about? Your soul and my soul. And how there has been a way provided for you and I to stand in a holy God's presence. Even though our problem is much deeper than defiled hands, guys. We have defiled hearts. And Jesus says, a way has been made for you to be cleansed and washed if you're willing to submit to it. 
Layers of complexity. Layers of complexity. Third thing, moving right along here. Third thing. Religion breeds contempt toward people and toward Scripture. Whenever you lift up, Tim Keller said this, whenever you lift up part of God's law and elaborate it, and you neglect other parts, you create a manageable law, a law you can obey, a law you can get on top of, a law that's doable. Then, with it, you bash other people who are not doing it to justify yourself. I mean, we all think this way, don't we? We all have, there's, there's, there's clean things and there's unclean things, and we are the ones who determine what those things are. There's unclean people you don't hang out with as a Christian. There's unclean places you don't go as a Christian. Uh, there's unclean music you don't listen to as a Christian. There's unclean movies you don't watch. And look, certainly I agree. There's some, <laughs> a lot of things as Christians we have no business exposing ourselves to. But that's not really what this text is about. This is about religious leaders determining on behalf of their, their people things that were just preferences, traditions, things that had no um, compatibility with Scripture at all. In fact, they were antithetical to Scripture. And you don't have to teach people this. It's in our DNA. I mean, we laugh about the games that kids come up with. Cooties? Remember that game when you were in grade school? He's got cooties. What's that all about? It's usually a kid that's an outsider. I mean, let's be honest. Maybe a kid from the wrong side, quote-unquote, of the tracks. They got cooties. Don't be around them. They're unclean. They're dirty. They don't belong here at the table with the preps and the jocks, right? We all have categories like that. They're in, they're out. You can't sit with me. You're separate. That's, you know, it says here in this text... There were many such things they did. There were all these washings. Whenever a scribe or a Pharisee went to the marketplace, oh, the marketplace was a dangerous place if you were a Jew. And if you obeyed all the traditions of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, because, listen, you could bump into a Gentile there. <gasps> Unclean. Boy, that would jack you up. You could bump into a Samaritan there and have to take your sandals off and shake the dust off. You might encounter a leper there and them not tell you that they're a leper. Maybe they're in the first stages. Or you may bump into a kid that's held a reptile. All the, I'm serious. All these things were part of the, some of them were part of the law. Some of them were part of the traditions. So if you were a Jew and you came back from the marketplace before you ate, oh my word, you better do some serious ritualistic cleansing. And it says here in the Greek with their fist, there was even a certain way you had to wash your hands. You would have to like hold them over and wash it with your fist, wash it with this fist. I read that this was so severe that in the New Testament times, historically, not in the Bible, but you can read about it somewhere else, that a Jew was captured by the Romans and imprisoned, and he was starving to death. And they brought him water and they brought him food. You know what he did with the water? Yeah, he almost died because he used the water to cleanse his hands first. I'm like, dude, come on, man. That's how ridiculous this was. And this breeds contempt for people. Because listen, when you've got your preferences and you have reduced the biblical command, see the problem with legalism and moralism and religion is not that you have um, too uh, high a view of the law, it's that you have too low a view of the law. Do you know that? Because the law is impenetrable. There's no way anybody in here can keep the Ten Commandments. Now, let me just say that as your pastor. There's no way. Because, listen, it's not just uh, externals that you keep. The Ten Commandments were summarized, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing on that? <laughs> Nobody keeps it. One person kept that law, Jesus. So when you see the impossibility of that, it's easy to say, uh, I know, I know uh, that the Bible says you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath. Um, so, man, what's that look like? I mean... I, what it really means is rest in God's finished work on your behalf, right? 
but that's impossible to do. So I'll tell you what I can do. I can come up with all these silly, ridiculous laws uh, that I can walk this many paces on the Sabbath if I'm a Jew, as long as I have two or three items from my house and I've stashed them there at that intersection. That's considered my home because that's my, that they did this. So that you can actually, on the Sabbath day, walk all over the city, do your shopping, do your purchasing, come on and say, there, I've kept the commandments because of some stupid tradition that you introduced and tried to establish. And Jesus calls them out on it. You know, the, the big one that Jesus calls out here is something called Corbin. This is crazy. Man, Jesus is... You, you just worship him when you read this because he's... he's He's so wise, the way that he confronted people with their own, with their own stuff. Um, he says, you have a very fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. He called them out. He didn't mess around, did he? They said, why don't your disciples keep the traditions? He said, why are you hypocritical and you reject the commandments of God to establish your tradition? And he quoted Isaiah 29, which is a terrible verse to ascribe to somebody because it meant uh, in the Old Testament, it said your hearts are far from God, but your lips, you worship him, you praise God, you're raising your hands, but your heart is estranged from God, and you're hypocrites. That word meant under the mask in Greek. In that time in the world, they didn't put makeup on when they went to the theater and were acting. They put a mask on. And Jesus said, you, you guys all are pretending. You're all wearing masks. You're pretending to be something in public, but behind the mask you have defiled hearts. I was going somewhere with this, and I forgot. Where was I going? Help me. Corbin, yeah, thank you. Man, somebody's on it. Thank you, both of you. <laughs> so here's what they did. The Bible says honor your father and your mother. Huge deal if you were a Jew, right? That's the most important relationship to a Jew was between the father, mother, and their children. Um, and that meant usually when the parents were older, you provided for them. You had to pocket some, some serious coins to take care of your parents, right? It's expensive. You had to food them, feed them, clothe them, put them in shelter when they were sick. Pay for medical expenses. And so here's what the Jews would do because the Pharisees were filled with greed and pride. You know, we read that other places. So here's what they would do. There was something at that time, a tradition called Corban, and that basically meant given to God. It meant offering. And they would say, you know what? My parents are getting old and there's all this money that I have. I'm so greedy. I tell you what, I'm going to go to the, to the religious leaders and, and designate this Corban. We're going to call this Corban, and that means... Uh, only I can touch it, uh, I can't give it to anybody else because then I would be violating a vow. And the Bible says that let your yes be yes and your no be no and don't violate a vow, right? So, they, so here's what they would do. When their parents got over and needed help, they would say, Mom, Dad, Mom, Pa, you know, I'd really love to help you. I'd really like to honor you, but all that stuff, I've designated Corbin. I can't touch it. I can't give it to you. I mean, how terrible is that? For their tradition to be established, they had to violate one of the most important and precious commandments to honor your father and mother. And Jesus calls them out on it. And he says, look at this. Look what your religion has done. Do you know that the summation of the law is love? And look what you've done. You have rejected one of the commandments and you have held contempt for your parents. He calls them out on it. That's what it does. It breeds contempt toward people. It breeds contempt toward Scripture. You're in, you're out. Tim Keller said this too. He planted a church in New York City back in 1989, and he said all the time, people would come to him and they say, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, you're a pastor. Oh, you live in New York City? Oh, goodness, how can you be a Christian and live there? That's a dirty place. That'd be terrible to try and raise your family there. Now, what is that? Well, that's just simply what this text is talking about, right? People that live in the city, they're dirty. That's a vile place. That's you don't want to raise a family there. 
And we still have that today. We still have this false dichotomy. This is sacred and this is secular. You know, you can't work in the financial industry. That's dirty. You can't work in the media industry. That's dirty. We have all these demarcations. It's the same thing the Pharisees did. Clean, dirty, holy. I've got a pet peeve as your pastor. You probably know it if I'm very close to you. I don't like using the word Christian as an adjective. I hate that. This is Christian music. I know what you mean by it. It's not me nitpicking. I know what you mean. You mean that there's a Christian artist that wrote these lyrics that honor the biblical worldview. I get it. I know that. But we got to be careful because if we're not careful, we're going to think that Jesus died for music or something, I guess, you know. Uh, this, is a Christian, this is a Christian calling, being a pastor. But being an accountant, meh, sorry, you know. Maybe someday you can work as an administration, administrator in a church and have a sacred, holy calling, you know. It's, we have all these lines in the sand. This is holy, this is unholy, this is clean, this is dirty. And Jesus said it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Paul said it was ridiculous too, and I think 1 Timothy 4. So, is this making sense, guys? I feel like I'm all over the place. Religion makes you, uh, it breeds contempt toward people, towards the people that, that, that don't keep your traditions. In fact, Melissa had a quote uh, the other day that I love. Listen to this. The second part of this really should go before the first. The only one who has any right to throw a stone has absolutely no desire. The closer we get to God, the less we desire to throw stones. Does that make sense? You're being really quiet. I don't think you get it. Here's what I mean. This is, this is a litmus test. If you want to know, have I fallen subject to this religion thing? How much contempt do you hold toward others that, that aren't like you? Is it really easy for you to accuse them, malign them, gossip about them, throw rocks? i got to confess something to you as your pastor, okay? I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you. And you can pray for me. It's 41 minutes already. <sighs> um, I, I received news about a week ago that there's a, a fairly large church that's established in Orange City. And I received news that they're going to launch two new campuses. You know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> yeah. One is going to be in Deltona next year. The other is going to be in Deland the following year where I live. Now, I've got to be honest with you. When I first read that, I said, praise God, this is awesome. We need more churches. And it, No, that's not what I said. I'm embarrassed to tell you that. I didn't say that. You know what I felt? I felt threatened. I felt threatened. Why? Because religion had begun to creep in. You say, what's that got to do? Well, listen, you view all these rules and traditions as a way to make yourself acceptable and presentable to God and successful in the eyes of your peers. And to me, the way that I'm acceptable to God is that grace life is thriving and all these seats are full and people are lauding me because of my amazing sermons, right? <laughs> Seriously, if another church comes along and starts stealing my members, stealing my sheep, then goodness, it's going to make me look terrible. I'm just confessing to you guys, that's religion. I'm not immune from it. I'm not and certainly you're not either. So I had to confess to the Lord. I even contacted this guy that put the post up. I said, look, man, praise God. If you guys preach the gospel, praise God. We need 50 more churches. This is the biggest city in Volusia County, Deltona is. 90,000-something-odd people. We need 50 more churches that will faithfully proclaim the good news about Jesus. We do. We can't have too many. But my heart initially had a terrible reaction to that. Okay, man, i gotta, got to move along here. Number four, it binds our freedom. And all these are in the passage, okay? It binds our freedom. We say, what do you mean? How free would you feel if you knew that your religious leaders were watching you with binoculars? Seriously, 
You want to crimp somebody's freedom? You want to steal the joy and the liberty and the abundant life of being a Christian? Introduce religion into somebody's life. Moralism, legalism. Can you imagine if you were a mom and the dad's at work, you were a Jew, and you had to take the kids out into public and you knew there was going to be a crowd of Pharisees there? I'm serious. I pray this, that I would never see one of the people in this church or somebody that I know in a grocery store and they're with their kids or they're with their husband and they see me and they want to turn around and walk the other way. That would break my heart. Because you know what? That probably says a lot about how they perceive me. That I'm rigid and I'm angular and I'm tough and have all these laws and traditions and it binds your freedom. There was, when I went to seminary, and I'm not throwing rocks at my seminary, okay? Because all the guys that go to seminary, there's layers and layers and layers of, of, of stuff already built up in their life. Some of them come from really great orthodox backgrounds. Some of them come from very legalistic backgrounds. At some point in seminary, I found, I found myself with a group of young men that were newlyweds. They had never worked in the secular field. They had just been interns. And I found myself leading a Bible study. They were on the way out. They were seniors, and I was on the way in. I was a freshman in seminary. And uh, man, I, I hope the story makes sense. Um, and I, I like to laugh, guys. I, I'm a funny person. I, I am. I like to laugh. Uh, laughter doeth good to make a merry heart or something like that. It's in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> I'm tired, man. Can you tell? And so we're having this Bible study, and these guys are really serious. They're really, and they're saying, and the ladies are having their meeting next week, and it's for ladies only, and the guys can do the babysitting. And I said, man, wouldn't it be funny if I, if I put a, because they were watching a show, the women were getting together and watching a show on Netflix. I said, wouldn't it be funny if I put a wig on and went down there and said, hey, girls, how's it going? And, and one of the guys looked at me kind of strange, and I thought, oh, that's odd. Well, me and that guy carpooled to seminary every day, and the next morning, like clockwork, we got in the car, we're driving, and he looked over at me and he said, hey, can I ask you a question? And I said, yeah. And he said, what did you think about your comment last night at our Bible study? And I said, what comment? He said, the one about cross-dressing. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, yeah, you, you, you talked about putting on a, a woman's wig and going and fellowshipping with the, with the wives. And I said, dude, are you, are you serious? I said, I thought it was hilarious. He said, I... I didn't think it was hilarious. And I said, you, he said, you really need to be careful. And he said, I personally know that one of the ladies there was highly offended at that. And I said, your wife? And he said, yeah. I said, <laughs> I said okay. And I want to tell you, my wife will tell you, this is funny, but it makes me want to cry because I never want to be like this. I never want to be like this. Never want to be like this to people. Because you, misrepre- you, you, you present God as being cold, distant, angry, harsh, unloving, and ungracious. And is that how God is? No, it's not. But that period in my life, that year, before that guy graduated and left, my wife will tell you, she questioned. She questioned whether or not I was called to be a preacher. You know why? Because every time I got together and would teach that Bible study, I was not myself. Because he was there. He was there. And I didn't feel the freedom to, to infuse my personality in the teaching. I just felt so crazy. Have you ever been around somebody like that? It will kill your joy. It will kill your Christianity. And you know what? Before you know it, you may be walking away from the faith and saying, if that's Christianity, I was happier before. No, thank you. In fact, that person, and, and God helped me to forgive him. When, when we were uh, pregnant with one of our boys, somebody mentioned, hey, maybe you could call your son this. And it was that guy's name. And I went, oh, I'm serious. And Sarah said, are you okay? And I said, oh, I just had like a PTSD. No, I'm not calling my son that. <laughs> it's terrible. Man, guys, 47 minutes. I can't, I'm really sorry. No wonder people bit off smaller chunks. Okay, here's the, here's the, uh, 
Man, I had a slide for you. Can we put this slide up? Can you see that? Have you guys ever seen the movie The Village? I try to be really careful when I mention movies up here. It's a scary movie, but I think that it was quietly inspired by rigid fundamentalism. Because, uh, put the next slide up. It's about these group of people. You can't see that, can you? I'm sorry. It's about these group of people, and they're, they're, they're brought into the middle of a wilderness, and they're secluded, and they're isolated, and they're kept in fear, and they're kept in ignorance, and there's all these rules, and there's deception, and they're trying to protect people from the dirtiness of the world outside of them, you know? And by the end of the movie, you see that there was plenty of filth and dirt on the inside. Um, but that movie just reminded me of sometimes how we treat Christianity. It's everything outside of us is dirty, and that's one of the last... That's one of the last points here, okay? Last point. Oh, I'm sorry. This is in my notes, not up there. The last point is religion bypasses the real problem. It bypasses the real problem. What is the real problem? What is it that, that puts distance between us and God? Is it dirty hands? Is it we're not keeping the rules? We're not keeping the traditions? I'm not talking about commandments. I'm talking about our traditions. Is that it? Are we not holy enough because we're not hanging out with the right people, listening to the right music? No. Listen to what Jesus said here. This is so... Astonishing. Verse 14, he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Ooh, Jesus is about to throw down the gauntlet. Because you know what? At first, this was a little private meeting between the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus, he gets holy indignation here. And he says, Hang on a minute, time out. And he called all the people that were infected by this rubbish. He called them on. He said, Hey, everybody listen. Everybody listen. Take heed. Listen to me and understand. Hear all of you. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Do you know how revolutionary of a statement that was? May Jesus help us wrap our minds around this. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then verse 70, when he entered the house, let the people, his disciples, ask him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you see how deeply entrenched this falsehood was? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach? Do you see? He's saying, the stuff that you're eating, it doesn't get anywhere near your heart, the center of your being. It's eliminated. It ends up in the latrine. It's almost funny the way the example Jesus makes, so memorable. But then listen to this. It enters not his heart, but his stomach and expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. <laughs> Man, I, we, I could spend weeks telling you the implications of that statement. You realize what he just said? It's okay to eat bacon. It's okay to eat shellfish. It's okay to eat fish with, you know, scales on it, or it's okay to eat a raccoon or possum or whatever you want to eat. He says, because none of it has, has any, none of it has any power to defile you. And Jesus was basically saying all those Old Testament, the, the, the things that were commandments, that were ritualistic, I'm the fulfillment of them. They were all telling you that you're unclean, you're not able to approach God, but I am. But I am able to approach God, and I am the way, the truth, and the light. That's what he was saying. But check this out. Verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. That's incredible, guys. Jesus is saying the problem is not out there. That is not where the problem is. The problem is in here. And, and, and this is what's so staggering that I pray we understand. Jesus declared all foods clean. That's good news. Hallelujah if you're a bacon lover. He declared all foods clean. Here's the bad news though, okay? He declared all foods clean, but he declared all hearts dirty. 
So just let that, let that settle in your heart for a minute. Jesus is, there's good news, but there's bad news. All those things are clean. But he's saying in here, we're all defiled and we're filthy and we're polluted. So what are we going to do about that? That's the question. See, let's not bury it under layers of complexity. We're unclean. I mean, did you hear this list? The first six are plural. They're actions. The second six are singular in Greek. That means they're attitudes. I mean, this is comprehensive defilement. So what are we going to do about this? We need to be cleansed. You know, there's a place in the Old Testament, and I know I'm, 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 I'm running out of time, and I know you guys are going to be okay if I take a couple extra minutes, right? <laughs> Thank you, both of you. <laughs> this is, there, there is an Old Testament passage that's just incredible. It's Zechariah chapter 3, okay? Check this out. This is Zechariah, and he sees a vision. And he showed me a vision of Joshua the high priest. You don't have to turn there, just listen to this. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now let me just tell you what this means here. There will be a priest in the Old Testament who one day out of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would have the responsibility, the burden of going into the Holy of Holies. You know, they had a tabernacle and there was the outside court, the inside court, then the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. Nobody could go there but the high priest. He could only go there once a year and boy was he afraid because that's where the presence of the Lord dwelt. And to go in there, to be a high priest and to go back there, you had to be ritualistically, ceremonially, it took a week to prepare. You didn't eat certain foods. You had people holding you accountable. You were isolated. You were kept separate. You bathed every day. You bathed in, in, in front of the people. The night before, you stayed up all night praying. You had people that were cheering you on, encouraging you. You would quote scripture. And then uh, you, you went into the Holy of Holies three times. One, to atone for the sins of yourself, right? Secondly, uh, to atone for the sins of the priest. And third, to atone for the sins of the people. So everyone was watching. They wanted to make sure that you did all the, all the um, regulations to, to represent them. So that's why it's so astonishing when you read that this high priest named Joshua, this is a vision that was given to Zechariah. He's standing in the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies, and his garments are defiled. And that word in Hebrew, it means there's excrement, there's poop on them, children, okay? There's vomit, there's bodily discharge. This will be, this will be like a 7-Eleven bathroom. You take a white towel and smear it all over the floor and then wear it as a robe and go meet with God. So can you imagine Zechariah getting this vision? was like, hold on, how in the world could this happen? How could a high priest that takes that much care end up with vomit and urine and excrement and all this stuff over him? And what God was doing was showing us through this vision that this is how God sees us. I know, I know this is crushing, but it gets better, okay? This is how God sees us. You can do all the rituals, all the ceremonies, bathe 50 times, quote all the scriptures you want, you still got a dirty heart. So what happens? Well, check this out. And the angel, and by the way, Satan's in this vision, and what's he doing? Accusing. He's accusing. You don't belong here. And you know what? He's right. He's right. You don't belong here. You're filthy. How dare you? You can't represent the people. You can't even represent yourself. And the Lord rebukes him. Well, how can God do that? Well, listen. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, man, I don't want to cry, but this is incredible. Remove the filthy garments from him. 
And to him, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. So he gives him this assurance. And then a little bit later he says this. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Who's this? Is Jesus. For behold, on that stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Years and years and years of ceremony, bathing, cleansing, going into the temple, doing all the cleansings, offering all the lambs, and God says in one day, my servant, the branch, is going to purify and take away all the iniquities. So put clean clothing on him, put a clean turban on his head. How can he do that? So how are we cleansed? Well, this is a picture. Listen, there will be another high priest that would come years after this. He would come, and he would represent the people. And listen, he wouldn't have a clean turban on his head. In fact, I want to show you, you're going to have to skip forward. If you, here we go. Um, both Jesus had to take a week to prepare, and Joshua in this vision had to take a week to prepare. Do you know what kind of week Jesus had? You know, Joshua, the high priest, he was cheered on by the crowds, Right? They were making sure he did everything right. Jesus was jeered by the crowds. He was rejected. They were calling out for him to be crucified. Joshua, the high priest, he prayed with friends. They stayed up all night with him, quoting scripture, praying. Jesus, his friends went to sleep. They abandoned him. The shepherd was struck and all the sheep scattered. Remember? This, ro- this priest was robed with rich clothing. Jesus was stripped naked and his and his. Lots were cast for his clothing. This priest would have been cleansed with the purest of water that could be found in Jerusalem. Jesus, he was bathed with blood and with spit. His beard was yanked out and plucked. This priest had a clean turban on his head. Jesus had a crown of thorns. This priest was accepted by God. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you guys understand the profundity of this? How can we, dirty, defiled, polluted people, Be accepted by God because Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for our defilement. That's how. He traded places with us. He said, look, I'll take your your pollution. I'll take your defilement. I'll take your sin. I'll take your iniquity. I'll carry that. I'll carry that for you. I'll suffer the judgment of God on your behalf so that you can be pardoned. Man, that's good news. Drink that in today. Religion kills Christianity and Jesus introduces a new life.